All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. We are here this evening, continuing with our Women in Leadership series. We are talking to Dr. Rosalinda Mercado out of the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas. Uh, they have quite the snowstorm going on down there, but I'm appreciative of her time and her willingness to still make time to participate in this process. Just a, I want to give a brief introduction of her title and her educational achievements. We have a lot to talk about. She's an accomplished uh, businesswoman. She's an accomplished leader, an accomplished communicator. And I want to get to the heart of all of that. But let me begin by saying uh, Dr. Mercado has her Bachelor's of Science in Inter Interdisciplinary Studies from Abilene Christian University. She has a Master's of Education, or MED, in Educational Administration from Texas A&M University. She has a Doctor of Philosophy, PhD, in Curriculum and Instruction, also from Texas A&M University. She is the Chief Executive Officer of Resiliency.com, where they provide executive coaching services, as well as a COO, or Chief Operations Officer, of Sunny Glen Children's Home in San Benito, Texas. And we're going to get to this uh, amazing areas of service that Dr. Mercado uh, serves her community in. But first and foremost, Dr. Mercado, thank you for your sacrifice of your time tonight. I know you've had a long day in the snow, still taking your daughter to her tumbling classes, and yet you made time for us. Uh, always for you, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you. I know that uh, I think the last time we may have seen each other would have been well over four or five years ago. Is that right? Yes. Uh, how long have you been in the Pacific Northwest? Well, we came back in, I believe it was either March or April 2016. Yeah. So it's been five years uh, since we, we last saw each other. So it's uh, incredible to reconnect and um, hopefully, uh, when people hear our conversation and the information that we share, particularly in this series, uh, they will be able to hear our authentic voices. But on top of that, that we also are just um, continuing where we last left off. Absolutely. Now, uh, Dr. Mercado is an executive coach who teaches leadership and communication, but that's what she does now. But her story began a long time ago in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, long before Abilene Christian University, long before her education at Texas A&M for her master's and her doctorate. So if we could go back in time a little bit, Dr. Mercado, and share from what you would like the audience to know about your development and how those experiences began to lead you down the path to academic achievement, professional achievement, as well as uh, your heart to go back to your home to make an impact and make a difference. Well, that's a lot, but thank you so much, Mark, for kind of putting it all together. And Mark, you, you don't know this, but I'll go ahead and share this with you and everyone who's uh, live here with us, that um, 2021 uh, marks 30 years uh, since I placed myself as a child at Sunny Glen Children's Home. So in 1991, the spring of 1991, I started living there as a 17 year old. Uh, once I had made the determination that I needed to change the trajectory of where my life was going. Now I would have 
probably not made this decision on my own as a junior in high school, trying to figure out what next steps I was going to take uh, without actually the help and support of friends who have had indicated that the life that I was currently living at that time in the 90s, early 90s, was not healthy. Um, and thus they actually reported um, the abuse that was taking place in my household. Um, and that spawned uh, an investigation by CPS, which uh, led to me researching what other options I had other than living with my family uh, to begin that journey. And, and Mark, I don't know if I've shared this uh, part with you, but one of the things that happens when um, someone is a survivor of abuse, there's a physical aspect of where people uh, can harm you physically. And you think, I got this, the bruises will go away. I, I figure, figured out a way to cope. But one of the things I truly felt that no one uh, could take away from me was my brain. And uh, in, in its uh, wholeness, like the physical wholeness of my brain, but also my capacity to be a, a, an individual who thinks for herself, bends for herself, finds resources to um, help her figure out what next steps to take. And with that, the immediate kind of um, next natural step was, if I do have a hold of my brain, um, then I have a hold of my education. And if I have a hold of my education, then this thing called poverty is going to end uh, because no one uh, could take my education away from me. And that's where it came from. There was no vanity and I didn't have any desire to uh, be uh, called a doctor. I didn't actually even know what a master's was. Um, it wasn't until I started my bachelor's that I started hearing the language of a master's and a doctorate. And I started inquiring um, as to how I could uh, be a part of that process. And it just unfolded as I did uh, soon after I had entered the home. And the, the possibilities um, seemed uh, endless if I was willing to, to make the sacrifice uh, to invest in myself. And that was a really hard process to know that I was a worthy investment because that was taken for me uh, early on. I've had the pleasure of reading your book that you wrote while you were in your PhD program. You were convinced to write a book about your life. I have it upstairs in my home. I don't want to misquote the title because I can. So why don't you quote the title for me? Uh, so my, well, well, okay. So again, very uh, serendipitously as my education unfolded, my bachelor's and my master's came to be and my doctorate, none of that was planned, nor was my dissertation. And um, I say this because I am about year four into my doctorate, I'm sitting with my committee, uh, and I'm about to defend my current uh, proposal that I've written, which is not the final product uh, in, in my, my dissertation. I am going to my committee to defend my proposal a month after my father passed away. What my committee did not know was that I was going in there to tell them that I was not going to finish my doctorate. They did not realize that um, the journey that I had taken to even get to that point. But I explained to them 
that the very person that I wanted to prove that I was going to survive was no longer here. So I didn't have to keep going because I was going to continue without him and he no longer was here. And that was my father. And when they heard that, they inquired and asked me to tell them more. So I did. I informed them um, up to of what started 30 years ago when I made the decision to place myself in the children's home and how I ended up right where I was with them at that moment in time. And they, the committee in its wisdom uh, is the one who asked and inquired if I would then do uh, the research is under the umbrella of qualitative research, um, but it, it is an autoethnographic piece. Autoethnography is the study of your lived experience in your own social cultural context. Now, it's, I want everyone to know that at this point in time, I'm not, I have not been living at home. As soon as I graduated high school, I was attending university for many, many years, 14 years after I graduated high school to finish the three degrees that I ended up finishing. And so even after I was um, attending higher education and I had been gone for so long, I still did, didn't feel safe nor ready to return home. So I worked away from the real Grand Valley where I am now. And a, a lot of it had to do with, I was not ready to come back home if it wasn't safe, nor would I be okay around my natural family. Um, and, uh, and so as I am going through that process, I'm, I'm now, this is um, now me sitting in front of my committee and them deciding uh, or asking me if I want to decide to change my research and write about my life story. So the book that you uh, so graciously mentioned, it's my dissertation, which is entitled From Being Considered at Risk to Becoming Resilient. It's an autoethnography of abuse and poverty. And the reason why I asked you that so early on in this conversation, Dr. Mercado, is because I wanted for those that are listening, there's a lot of people that are going to hear this, especially here on the West Coast. They don't know you. Mm -hmm. I've had the pleasure of reading your book and knowing your backstory. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want to push you to share things about your story that you don't you're, you don't feel like sharing. But I wanted to mention that because there is a place that people can go to read the backstory mm -hmm. of that mm -hmm. long-term experience, the development, the things that you've just mentioned very concisely uh, regarding your your history, your autoethnography. Does that say yes, that autoethnography. That's right. I re I remember that. I wasn't sure I could say it right, but I remembered that on the that word in your book. Yeah. So you you go to Abilene Christian University. You start your bachelor study. You're very well. Let's go back. You're moving to Sunny Glen. Yeah. You've got you've got a lot of stuff going on. Dr. Mercado, you have come from poverty, you've come from extreme abuse, you've come from terrible circumstances. People believed in you. People supported you. And you were given an opportunity. And I like what you said. I have a hold of my brain. If I have a hold of my brain, I can get a hold of my education. And if I can get a hold of my education, no one can take it from me and I can break the cycle of poverty. Yes. In this concept, this series is titled Women in Leadership, but it applies to anyone in the area of leadership. 
let's go back to some of those initial stages to any young, because this is really important to any young women that are going to hear this, because that's who the majority are listening to this, uh, these series are, are young ladies or how can they, what would you say to them if they feel like it, and they're in a position that they can't do it, it's impossible, there's no way out? Uh, well, first of all, um, in any situation, if you're looking for healthy, it requires boundaries, Mark. Um, and boundaries are what's going to allow you to decide what is your safe harbor who are the people that are in your network of influence that are there to support you, particularly during the hard times. And then you actually have to acknowledge the hardest part, who is not uh, good for you. And that is probably the hardest decision that anyone can make because you really believe that that person has good intentions for you. And in my case, initially, it was my, my immediate family uh, and particularly, you know, my parents, um, I, I know that they are hardworking people. I'm never taking that from them, but they didn't always make the best choices. And when they didn't, it, yes, it hurt me, right? It, it really did impact and have an effect on my being. And, and to acknowledge that it was my parents that created the hurt, that's hard. So one of the things that I established um, through counseling. So uh, this is not me doing it alone and I'm superwoman and I got this. This is six years of therapy, of recognizing what, what um, I could bring to the table and what I uh, could do wholeheartedly without feeling shame or anger or being upset was that I learned I deserved to be uh, in a relationship where addiction wasn't taking over. And someone else's addiction was never going to be my addiction. And that was a boundary that I set. So uh, if I saw the addiction, it was real easy for me to sever that relationship because I knew already from the onset that person wasn't at a reasonable state to be able to even coherently uh, reason with me. So why exhaust my energy there, right? That's one. The second, um, thing that I, I uh, of course, was very familiar with, with abuse. And I, too, recognized that no matter how hard a situation is, there could be a solution. Someone uh, leading to abuse and saying, this is what I'm going to do to you because you deserve it. No, nobody deserves that kind of hurt. That, you, that just means that you're so utterly frustrated that you can't figure out another way out. And so now you're hurting somebody else as a result of it. Again, that too, I didn't, uh, um, I learned I didn't have to endure. And, and if I was, uh, as I was reestablishing and building my relationships with a, a potential future partner, if I was to, to be uh, married and if I was to be in a relationship, uh, then adultery it was a non-negotiable for me. I just didn't think that at any point in time I deserved for anyone to uh, cheat and me say, okay, let's try again. And then you cheat, okay, let's try again. That is your issue, it's not mine. So why am I the one that has to endure that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I understood where I stood 
in, in those three aspects, then it was real simple to determine the boundaries that I would set in the relationships that I had, no matter the intimacy level. It could be that we're an acquaintance. It could be that we're really close friends. Um, it could be that you are uh, my life partner. It, either way, I, I was still going to look at it from that lens. Um, and so I, I would say to, to any of the young ladies um, that are saying there's no way out, there's always another option. You always have choice. Uh, it's just up to you whether or not you want to take it. I want to repeat a couple of things you said. Um, six years of therapy, mm -hmm. you were not doing it alone, and that's really mm -hmm. important. Right. You had to learn to recover wholeheartedly. Yes. And no matter how hard a situation is, there is a solution. That's correct. So you're at Sunny Glen at 17. You're learning healthy boundaries. You're learning that people can love you and care about you and be good to you without hurting you and harming you. Mm -hmm. As you began, your brain began to change and break the, uh, become aware of new things. How did you get to this point where, I know your story, but I'm asking you for the people that don't know. Yes. You want to get, you're interested in going to college. I know that people believed in you. I know that people wanted to help you. What was it about those moments and times, the changes that were coming back, that your horizons began to change so noticeably that people wanted to help do something about it? Um, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, my doctoral research is in uh, resilience, right? I, that's my research that I did. And so I, I had a lot of, uh, I've had over 20 years of work in resilience. And uh, believe it or not, Mark, um, the way that we come across to people, and I was always hopeful. Um, I was always looking at things, um, of from the upside, you know, what if, how come, why not, you know, just taking uh, any opportunity that I had that um, everyone was actually dumbfounded that I wasn't sad, that I wasn't uh, always feeling hurt. Um, but you should look at the massive things that have happened. I said, I don't have the energy to emphasize um, I don't have the energy to emphasize um, what it is um, that cannot work. Where I want to place my energy is on what could. And, and if I did that, then everyone else who was watching me, even if I didn't realize it, said, hey, I want more of whatever that is. How come she's figuring it out? How come she's okay with life and everything is kind of uh, falling apart in her area that any one of us would have fallen apart at this point in time. And because I had that perspective early on, um, that, that there was some um, synergistic kind of connection, like, yes, if she's going to do something productive with my support, then let me continue to, to support her. So that's what happened early on. But I don't want to um, falsely advertise the, what you see here because I do want to tell you that it wasn't until 10 years after I placed myself. So if in 1991, I had placed myself in the children's home and I was 17, 
10 years later in 2001, I was 27 working on um, finishing up my master's. No, no, I had already finished it up and I was working actually on my doctorate. And one of my professors had come up to me and he had said, hey, everyone's listening to what you have to say. You have voice. And, and it, that dumbfounded me. I was shocked. Like, what are you talking about? I have a voice. I'm just speaking. Uh, I, I minimized uh, this capacity that I had. And he said, no, people are listening closely to what you're saying. So that means that you need to take that responsibility and be able to own that. And I now at that point understood that I had capacity. I didn't believe um, all of my undergraduate that I had the, the full capacity that I did. I convinced myself every day that I woke up that I had capacity, but I didn't necessarily own it. And when I finally finished my master's, I said, oh, you mean I can actually use this to help other people? Then let me do that. And it, that was transformational for me when I recognized that the reason why everyone wanted to help me was because whatever they did for me, I then would be able to do in tenfold with all the other people that I could influence and impact in a positive way. And, and I, I understood and I appreciated that, but I didn't realize it immediately. So you're, you were always hopeful, excuse me. Mm -hmm. You viewed the upside. Yeah. At 27, 10 years after entering Sunny Glen, you're working on your doctorate. Mm -hmm. One of your professors pulls you aside and says, Everyone is listening to you. Mm -hmm. You have a voice. Mm -hmm. You didn't really accept that initially. It shocked you. No. Then he reaffirms that everyone is li listening closely. And so you realize you had a, t he to advised you take responsibility, own it. And you discovered then you had tr the true capacity 10 years after the fact, three degrees later, that you had capacity. Yeah. It's, it's indicative, and thank you for that timeline, Dr. Mercado, mm -hmm. because it takes time. Mm -hmm. And it is a developmental process. It is. And it is a journey. Yes. And it requires not only our energy and our effort, but our buy-in. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So you're at Abilene Christian University. Tell us how you began to shift, your mind began to shift, and you, the things you began to discover about you. Um, for the first time, uh, when I was at Abilene Christian, I no longer had the worry or the headache of um, what's happening at home. Uh, will I be able to um, fend for myself, feed for myself? I could do all of that and, and had all of the resources. Again, I wasn't, <laughs> anyone who's doing their undergraduate degree is poor, okay? Just because they have not earned their degree yet. But I, but I was healthy enough to even be able to focus fully on my studies um, and then be able to earn a part-time job that um, I was comfortable um, splitting my time with to again, just have a, a feel of what is this normal adulting, growing up as a young adult look like, feel like, and experiencing that. And um, in Abilene Christian, because um, it is affiliated with the Churches of Christ, which um, actually are correlated with Sunny Glen Children's Home because Sunny Glen Children's Home is affiliated with the Churches of Christ, you had, I had, 
the support system, um, and that's where my counseling started, but also to have the, your church family, to have the prayer time, um, and all of that was embedded within the university that I was attending. So when we would have weekends together, our professors would invite uh, whole groups of us to their house on the weekend, and we had Bible study. So everything that was foundational to how, who I was becoming was now stronger because the support systems that I was generating uh, from being at Abilene Christian was exactly what I needed to then freely say, you know what, I can go to whatever university, it just so happened to be Texas A&M after that, but I can go to whatever university and I'm going to be okay. I will um, be able to, to uh, handle whatever situation comes my way uh, simply because of the foundation that was laid. And I, I really do want to give ACU credit for that. And you know what's interesting, uh, Mark, are you speaking of that timeline? Um, at, at, uh, at the end of the, the graduating class, they choose uh, two people, a female and a male, for every graduating class, and they give them the Dean Adams Achievement Award. And the Dean Adams Achievement Award is given to an individual who has done everything he or she can do to accomplish the goals that they were set to accomplish at university, but they did it on their own. And you are nominated by the Student Life Committee, so your peers who recognize this and professors who make recommendations on your behalf, who see you as you have evolved. And I was sitting there listening to these accolades uh, about who this individual was. Um, and to hear the female named uh, as myself, I, I stood next to, I remember it was one of my peers that I was attending school with. And I said, that girl sounds like me. I, I wasn't fully convinced. She said, it is you. And, and it was a shock to know, again, I still didn't believe it. It wasn't until many years later, but it was a shock to know that people recognized the hard work, the effort, and the everything that got me to where that final stretch was. So that propelled me to even want to do more. Although I didn't know exactly how I would turn out, I didn't just want to disappoint and I wanted to make every decision that I made count because I wanted to, those people to know that they, um, even if by vote of confidence, they uh, have invested in an individual that is going to do right by people. So you're at Abilene Christian University. You no longer have the headache or the worry of what was going on at home. No. You were healthy enough to focus on your studies. Mm -hmm healthy enough to able to work part-time mm -hmm. you were beginning to grow up and grow into this process of adulting yes you began to have at the climate and the culture of Abilene Christian University the foundational support system prayer time church family the disciplines that supported your efforts yes you started your counseling there and the Dean Adams Achievement Award nominated by peers recommended by professors was awarded to you upon graduation, which propelled you to a new place of thought of wanting to make every decision count for those that invested in you. Yes, absolutely. I wanna to get to the counseling. I wanna to get to the counseling because when I went away to college and I dropped out of college at 18, 
I had a full ride. But I was so damaged, Dr. Mercado, from my parents' death, the living in different homes. I had no idea. At that time, and it was 1982, I had no idea what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. no idea. I remember telling the track coach these words, I feel like I have a black cloud hanging over me and following me every day. Mm-hmm. And the only thing he could say to me was, but you run so fast. <laughs> and it was at that moment that I quit the team. I remember yeah. I looked at him and I said, you don't care about me. Mm-hmm. And I said, I quit. Mm-hmm. And I walked through, I had no, I was too immature. I mm-hmm. had no one to turn to. Who recognized, how was it referred? Was Were you willing at that time or aware? This is for the people that need help and may not want to admit it may not know they need it, or may not know what to do next. How did you engage in that process for your health and development? It wasn't easy. Are you ready? Yeah. My freshman year of college, um, during Valentine's, I was raped. Um, And when that happened, I could no longer say that the abuse came from my family. And I was a child and I didn't know any better. I was a grown adult, independent, really thought I could do it on my own. And when the rape happened and the people that were around me were not reacting, were not responding, uh, were acting as if it was no big deal, I said, something's wrong here. Uh, I am not associating myself with the right people. This is not care. Uh, I feel like I'm back on square one. I'm going to see a counselor. So I immediately went to see the counselor and to say to her um, something, the very things that I'm telling you, uh, but to also acknowledge I'm willing to stay with this process until I'm okay. And I'm not going to ever acknowledge that I could do this on my own. Um, And I tried, (laughs) it didn't last but one semester, right? And it didn't work in my favor, at least not when the association with the people that I was with. And I, soon after I began my uh, counseling sessions, I did it twice. It wasn't just one individual session. I also did a group session for all of the rest of the years that I was at uh, Abilene Christian. So for four, the rest of my four years there, that's all I did was to go to class, go to work, and my extracurricular, if you will, was go to counseling because I wanted to ensure that when, whenever I truly became independent and I was a professional, that I would be able to negotiate these relationships that, that I would be engaging in. That also meant that I uh, intentionally decided that I would not commit to any serious relationship during my undergraduate years, that I would solely focus on the very education that I originally went into the children's home for uh, at Sunny Glen. And I wanted to uh, be able to finish that out and be able to say, once I'm done, I can hold my own. And it's true. My first degree, um, after my first degree was finished, my bachelor's, I ended poverty for myself. We're talking about your counseling. What was the trigger? 
-hmm. freshman year of college, Valentine's Day, you were raped. Mm -hmm. You realize then you couldn't blame anyone anymore. You couldn't blame mm -hmm. your family. And you knew immediately that you had to do something to change what was ever was going on so that mm -hmm. you would be okay. And so you participated in group and individual counseling for four years to make sure, to ensure that you had the ability to negotiate relationships professionally or otherwise, mm -hmm. which kept you from engaging in any kind of relationship in your undergrad. Right. And your bachelor's began the process of breaking poverty in your life. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Let's get on to, to now women in leadership. Let's get on to this evolution process, growth process, mm -hmm. your transition now from your undergraduate to now your master's degree program. What happened? Where did this vision become expanded? And where did you believe you were capable or ready to take that ongoing step? I was working really hard in my undergraduate, um, working um, at uh, HEB actually, uh, along with the, the work I was doing with my time to finish out my degree. <clears throat> and HEB had offered me an opportunity to work um, as, in corporate uh, because of my commitment uh, to their organization. And, but I was not going to Abilene Christian to work on the business side. My, my field was in education. And so I thanked them for the opportunity, but I uh, decided to focus um, on, on the edu higher educational system. And I decided to interview um, and set Texas A&M as a goal for my master. So I interviewed for a teaching job while I interviewed for a placement in their uh, master's of education program. And both came in uh, within the week that I had applied. So that was an immediate uh, indicator that that was the direction I needed uh, to go. So I went uh, to Texas A&M, um, but I didn't leave uh, counseling, by the way. As soon as I went to Texas A&M, my two years that I was there with my master's, I continued uh, to take counseling uh, there as well. Uh, because again, I was now transitioning into a new city. I was transitioning um, into a new university and I too wanted to make the, the best choices possible for myself in the uh, friendships that, that I was going to be making along uh, the way. Um, so I did that and I was working professionally. I, I was sustaining myself really well and then I was um, experiencing uh, this awareness as I was describing to you of who I was now becoming and what capacity I could have on a professional uh, level. Um, so as um, this process is unfolding, I'm still involved, um, keep in mind with the children's home. So anytime I say that I, I go home, I literally was going home to the children's home and they would have a place for me to stay, to visit, and I was always safe. Um, plus I had some support family in the College Station area and I would uh, spend some time with that family that was in connection to the children's home as well. So I was developing this um, ecosystem of, of families again and just reestablishing and reconnecting um, myself in the way that I knew it worked well 
um, it, in Abilene Christian. So I just recreated the systems. I reconnected with the church, reconnected with you know my, my new families that were there. So I just uh, kept replicating that and that helped. Now, um, as soon as I wrapped up uh, my master's, I just want to share with you that that was a goal of mine. Remember, I wasn't going to establish any relationships until I finished what I thought would be a solid um, educational uh, background because I didn't want to be um, waiting for someone to sustain me. I wanted to be able to do that, whatever the outcomes in life would happen. And so I felt that I could now do that. And it just so happened the timing that as soon as I wrapped up my master's, I got married. Um, and, and so um, I, I only stopped for two years um, as soon as I got married to work professionally, but then I started immediately to work on my uh, last degree, which was my doctorate. And it just so happened that I was working professionally in the Bryan College Station area. I was teaching there. Um, and so that lent itself for me to work on my doctorate in the same community that I was living in. This is uh, really important. Just let me say real quick, administratively, for those of you that are, do not know what HEB is, it is <laughs> the name of a grocery chain in Texas. Oh, that's right. <laughs> it's Henry E. Butts, right? I don't remember what the E yeah, yeah. for. But that is a HEB is a magnificent grocery chain down in Texas. It's very cultural. If you, have, if you go to Texas, you got to go to an HEB. HEB is a must. That's for sure. <laughs> and so that's. But but they're a highly reputable organization. Uh, incredible in giving back to the community. They help in disaster areas. So this was a massive organization. And again, another point in my life where my trajectory could have changed, but I decided to to focus on the education because HEB didn't know I wasn't ready to blossom yet. HEB didn't know that I was questioning my ability. I knew that. And I still needed some time to figure out what that capability was. Yes, yeah, so let me review. That's right. HEB is a, is a very large mm -hmm. food chain, uh, grocery store chain, and they serve the community in, with mass, in massive ways, life-changing ways. So you were working there part-time, getting your bachelor's, Upon graduation, they offered you a position in corporate. That's not what you wanted to do. You wanted to work in education. Mm -hmm. So you you interviewed for a teaching job in the Texas A&M area. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you uh, applied and interviewed for a master's degree program. Mm -hmm. And both of those came back as uh, successfully in, yeah. in, at the same time. When you got to the Texas A&M area, you re-engaged in counseling because you were transitioning mm -hmm. to new area, new people, new relationships, and you knew you needed that kind of support. Mm -hmm. And I want to stress these because for those, uh, especially women in leadership, developing women in leadership, this is really an important piece of your success and component to your success. You are still discovering new aspects about who you were as a person, and you continue to develop that ecosystem of family support, not necessarily your blood family, but within the faith, within your church, right. within friends, and you kept replicating that. You accomplished your academic goals of completing your bachelor's and your master's before relationship. You get married after your master's. 
and you're working in the teaching industry for two years. You're pregnant at that time? No, no. So let me tell you, I actually um, did not think I could be a good mother. So one of the initial um, conversations that I had with my spouse at the time was, hey, by the way, I, I'm really good at helping me. I don't know if I can help other people, uh, little people in particular. And I uh, joked about it, but the reality was the hurt and the example that I had been given from my parents what was not something that I wanted to replicate. And so again, in that growth aspect, my fear was I would not be a good mother. And so for the first eight years of our marriage, uh, we did not have children. And it was because I had made that deliberate decision to not have a family for fear of uh, not being able to successfully meet their needs, uh, be able to nurture them. I, I wondered if I had that innate ability because I had built so many coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms to hold myself strong, if you will, in the public that I didn't know what would happen if there was other uh, beings that I birthed that would actually um, create a, a different emotion that I wouldn't understand what to do with. So, so that was an, an actual agreement that we had until I was becoming healthy that I wouldn't. Um, and early on in, our, in my marriage, everything was good and agreeable and understandable. Um, but a, as life happens, uh, people evolve. And um, I finished um, in the book, in the, my dissertation, when I finished that, uh, my, my ex-husband happens to be in the book a lot because a, a whole part of who I was uh, was because of how, who we had become as a couple and what we had done uh, to be able to uh, nurture and support each other in the hardest uh, of times. And I thought that was now my, my sign and my leverage that I could really hold my own and hold my own family uh, with my spouse. But as I mentioned earlier, in the uh, if if for me if there was any um, findings of abuse of addiction or adultery, I was just out. I, I did not believe that anyone deserved that if I fully committed to you and didn't do any of those things myself. Um, and so, unfortunately, all three of those existed <laughs> uh, towards the end of our relationship. And I said to myself, because I now had two children, I was an educated woman, I had my doctorate, and uh, because I knew the research on child development, mostly because of my own personal work that I've done on myself, but I knew that um, starting at age four, my children, just like many other children, would start recognizing differences uh, and recognizing things that were not um, the same as others. And I uh, said that I would begin telling my story to them um, then so that they would understand why mom is cautious, why mom believes in safety first, uh, why mom was asking them to create boundaries uh, with people. And um, so that was one thing that I decided. The second thing I decided was that if my children ever came to me and said, mom, this isn't good. Whatever this was, 
the, the innocence of a child speaks volumes because they don't have any filter to see it other than the, the very lens that they're looking through. It's too pure for them to say it otherwise. So I fully believe that. And I said, I took it a step further, if they ever uh, find that what I'm enduring is too much, even from their own father and their own little voice, their own little voice says that's enough, uh, then I'm out. And so sure enough, my daughter uh, was eight um, and she was about to turn nine. And she says, mom, you don't have to do this anymore. And the, this was um, having to deal with the addiction, having to deal with the, the, the chronic um, abuse and what was happening in, in the household. And I said, okay, um, you do know that this has nothing to do with you. And because the children are my children and I raised them and I had conversations with them since they were little uh, about life. Um, my, my daughter's response was, mom, um, dad's addiction isn't mine. That's his problem. And then we were settled. Um, and so it didn't shake me to my core. It almost uh, felt very similar to what I had done to separate myself with my own family when I was 17. So I, we were married for 18 years and uh, that separation happened. So when it took place, um, it, it wasn't a hurt that I couldn't move from because I've moved from harder hurts, uh, I thought. So we were able to transition really easily uh, into the new home that I welcome you in now. Uh, and we have been in this new home and in this new life for four years now since that divorce. Uh, but again, it was a whole part of not believing this fantasy that everything was always gonna be perfect. And if it wasn't that you feel like you had to be stuck and stay in it, I, I didn't see any reward in that. I really just was interested at that point in time when I recognized what, um, a healthy life meant that I wanted to just offer that to my children. You know, Dr. Mercado, that takes a lot of courage. Um, it takes a lot of courage. It's really a wonderful gift to give to your children, to yourself, um, to remember where you came from and what you endured wow. and why you have to say no mm -hmm. and why you have to make those changes. Mm -hmm. Your development all is spelled C-O-U-R-A-G-E to me. <laughs> you get your master's, you're working for two years, you're married at the time, but you realize, I don't think I can be a mom. I don't think I can be a good mm -hmm. mom. Mm -hmm. So you make that decision. You're aware enough, you're healthy enough, you're strong enough to say, culturally, being mm -hmm. Latino, our role is to have lots of kids and to have a big family and to that's just the way it is. But your education, your counseling, your awareness, your personal development said that's not true. Mm -hmm. And so you were able to make those decisions. And even though and you're, so for your first eight years of marriage, there were no children. You were, you were aware enough that that was not probably that was not going to end up good. And if I remember correctly, uh, you had created this constructed, I believe the word was, you, you had this well-constructed public image, mm -hmm. professional image. Right. We're not sure what would happen if at home, vulnerabilities, weaknesses, 
if yeah. a child was brought into that. And that that's really, really important because um, you're, you're still talking about self-awareness here. You're talking about, I knew what I had to do to build myself up, my education, professional development, where I was going, what I was doing. And I still knew enough to know that it was still fragile, mm -hmm. that I was still fragile. Yes. So you are, you have a master's. What did you, you were also a principal at one point. Mm -hmm. I let's was. Talk, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. It. In, in the process uh, of uh, working and finishing, actually, I, I finished out my um, doctorate and I now could fully commit uh, because when you're working on your doctorate, it's like another full-time job. And I was already having a full-time job. And I, I, as a matter of fact, you know, we're on social media now. I was not on any kind of social media platform till after 2009 when I... Uh, finished all of my degrees. Um, and again, I, it was part of the commitment I had to see myself through this education. Uh, but I also had the awesome responsibility of now having a family by this point and taking on the role of being a campus principal. All of this was, again, a plus, plus, plus. Um, my children got to see me um, as a leader. They, they had a chance to be brought to work and see the, the work that mom did. And it, it was a lot, right, that they constantly had to, got to see when, when they were so, so young. Um, and, and so I never, um, a, as a person in leadership, I never shied away from being that example to my children. I never had a regret to say, oh, I wish I could spend more time because I wanted them to see what hard work looked like. I wanted them to see what, what it meant to persevere and still try to manage. I'm not saying I did everything right, but when I said, say to them now, uh, hey, this is the reason I'm working really hard and I'm putting in a lot of hours uh, because later on we get to reap the benefit. Um, and But you don't get to have it all at once at the same time. It just, life doesn't work that way. And now my, my kids understand that, that because they're so used to that immediate gratification, they're not gonna get it. That's not how they're going to be satisfied. So know that work towards the goal of what's gonna make you happy, but you still have to earn it. You just, nothing is going to, to be given to you. Um, so that was rewarding for me uh, professionally and personally. And I saw that uh, immediately. But at the same time, as I was working professionally with people, um, I learned uh, one thing, Mark, that I think is important for people to know. And I talk about now in some of the trainings uh, you talked about, I, I did coaching, executive coaching, and I do, I do a lot of that coaching, but I also do um, trainings. And one of them that I do is on empathy. And one of the things that I recognized about um, the empathy that I offer most people because of the life experience that I've had would uh, uh, assume, oh, that you just feel sorry for other people and you're constantly empathizing. And actually the empathy that I offer is, I get it. I understand that there is hurt where you're coming from, but how can we get back up? Um, how can we move forward? Show me what your next step is going to look like. I don't like to sit in sadness. And so for people who only want to sit there, then I'm not the person that they want to talk to. Because if you want uh, to, to have a conversation with me, I'm going to want to know when you're ready to move forward. Because just sitting in that negativity is not going to be uh, produce productivity. 
I really like that. I'm not going to sit in sadness. Mm -hmm. And when are you going to be ready to move forward? Yeah. Some hear this, they might say, well, she sounds pretty tough. <laughs> or some would say, she sounds kind of harsh. Let's talk about that clinically a little bit. Let's talk about why being prepared to move forward is absolutely necessary in the realm <laughs> of executive coaching, in the realm of training, in the realm of helping people break out of whatever, wherever they're currently at, whatever the station in life is, whatever the issue, this is your area of expertise. Resiliency, yeah. empathy. Is resiliency and empathy from uh, from a non, I don't know how to say this other than a non-educated perspective or uninformed perspective, uh -huh. is it just you, resiliency and empathy, does that mean you're just going to take me out to buy me an ice cream cone and listen to me for six hours? Well, like no, no, that's not productive, right? So let, let me, um, instead of uninformed, let's say the person is unaware. Usually when someone is unaware of what their predicament is, unaware that they even feel as sad as they do, unaware that they sound negative every time that they speak, when they don't have that awareness, they're not ready for a reality check. And that's when I can turn people off because you now just told me something that I don't want to hear. You're not ready. Uh, and it's much easier for you to blame me. It's much easier for you to tell me that I'm the mean one because you're not ready to own whatever it is you're creating for yourself. I'm not in charge of that. The brain research will tell us that the amygdala that is, uh, is the epicenter of our emotions. Do I own that amygdala? No, you do. So remember when I started earlier the conversation and I said to you that I had my brain, that nobody could take that away from me. I didn't even know that I was speaking research at the time. And later, uh, when I was doing my work on resiliency, um, I was hearing the characteristics, I was hearing the tendencies, and much like that Dean Adams Achievement Award, I said, wait a minute, that sounds like what I've been doing. What is this resiliency thing? Uh, I wanted to put context into it. I wanted to understand it. And once again, Mark, as God would have it, I am called to speak in Snowflake, Arizona. The folks found me on the internet, they saw my research, they saw my dissertation, and they said, hey, you have research on resilience, you know about abuse and poverty, and we're having a conference. And I said, oh, yes, would you be so kind to tell me who referred you? No, no, we just found you online. Uh, and you're, you speak on the topics that we want to address. So I speak with candor, I speak with honesty, and I can only speak from a spirit of frankness. That's all I know. I, and so I went there speaking my story and I tell the folks, and by the way, Snowflake Arizona, um, at the, in this particular conference had a heavy uh, attendance from the Navajo Nation. So there's a gentleman who, re who represents these children who are abused within the Navajo Nation. And he was there uh, to learn more about, you know, the different strategies to use. And of course, listen to, to the keynote that I was offering. And he stood up because at the end of my keynote, I offer opportunities for people to ask questions. And he stood up to me and wanted to just make a comment. He didn't have a question. And he said to me, uh, the spirits wanted me to let you know that you were meant to tell your story. And I, that is an awesome responsibility. That is an incredible 
uh, gesture that he offered me. And I cannot um, step away from the truth and tell people just what they want to hear because that responsibility is too great. And I'm not letting that go. That's a lot. <laughs> and it's very impactful. And I want to make sure that we give adequate time to the pieces of what you're saying. Because we're now trans we've now in this discussion, we've gone with 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 this concept of women in leadership, your personal story, your personal journey, the strength that you had to find your convictions, your mm -hmm. foundational truth, your boundaries. No, I cannot remain in this marriage with these issues that are taking place. These these right. are non-negotiables. I deserve more. The children deserve more. Mm -hmm. This is where we say goodbye. Mm -hmm. And this is where this part of my our story ends and my, the next chapter of my story begins. Four years in your new home, four mm -hmm. years on this new trajectory, mm -hmm. four years into this new un folding and unveiling destiny, which yes. is Rosalinda Mercado, Dr. Rosalinda Mercado, resiliency.com. Mm -hmm. You were an executive coach for Equilibria or E-Colors. Mm -hmm. Right. So as this new destiny unfolded, as this new chapter began, how were these things coming into view about shifting from Equilibria to the creation of resiliency dot uh, doc 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 dot com yeah yep. are you ready mark huh? because this is the big one out of all of them i finally had to admit in 2020 that i could not do it alone again so incredibly humbling to be uh, in the work that I was doing as the CEO of eColors in Education, working alongside with Equilibria for seven years. I had every week the opportunity to go across the nation and train people and talk to them about the very things that I was passionate about in communication and leadership and how to uh, you know, improve high performance on teams. And I was doing this without ever questioning, again, um, the time I had at home versus the time I had with my kids versus, you know, how much I committed to my career. It just, none, none of that was ever in question because my children at this point had bought into, we'll reap the benefits after the hard work has been completed. I understand that you have to commit as we have to commit. Uh, and so we, we were keeping this flow in 2020 my last live session was in uh, February of 2020. And in Texas, uh, that's when everything started coming to fruition about the pandemic. Now, I, I didn't mention, I mentioned that my father passed away a month before I defended my proposal originally, and that changed the tra tra trajectory of my dissertation and what topic. But my mother had actually passed away nine years after him. And in that process of her um, being alone and a, an, a single um, person and not attached to the identity of being the spouse of my father, um, she grew uh, and she just flourished and um, thus our relationship changed and shifted um, as a result of that. 
And actually the roles reversed because she, of course, stayed with him until he died. I said, hey, mom, this is what it's going to feel like when you have freedom. This is what's going to feel like when you can make decisions on your own without anyone haunting or taunting you. Um, so just be ready for that and don't feel any remorse or regret. And my mother now started understanding what it was to live for herself because she, for so many years, she was just dedicated to that relationship with my father and it was always abusive, right? And, and so when I wrote my dissertation, I'm telling you, not everybody was happy in the family. Uh, I, I wouldn't even tell you that one was. <laughs> the, it was hard for them to, to, even if I didn't use their real names uh, in the story, it was hard to be depicted in, in the story um, with the, the harsh things that had happened uh, in there. And I wasn't hiding anything, right? Um, and so I, I share that with you because I then had my relationship with my mother evolved over those nine years that she was alive. And um, in the last year uh, that she was alive, I had uh, contributed another chapter to another book and that was also in the same series uh, that I called my dissertation from being considered at risk to becoming resilient. But this one was um, as an immigrant child uh, finding her voice. Because what happened in those nine years, my mother and I were becoming US citizens at the same time. We were bo both born in Mexico. And so um, our experiences to citizenship was a completely different journey, but that actually put us at a different level in our relationship and how she needed me as her translator and um, how we were able to navigate and get her through the system and you know, uh, so that she can start um, having the, the credentials she needed for Medicare and all, so on and so forth, right? I asked her, mom, can I write about this journey about us, both of us becoming um, US citizens together and by the way, it's very similar to how I wrote the book, but this time it's going to tell our stories as immigrant uh, Latinas trying to find uh, our voice. And she now understood by that point what it meant to contribute that kind of research and what it would mean for communities to understand this is what sacrifice looks like, right? In uh, that process of writing uh, that story, um, I, uh, my mother um, had revealed that my father was actually the one who saved her from being um, uh, held uh, hostage, if you will. At that point, she, she, she lived with a lady she worked with in a grocery store and she had a room and board, if you will, but she would not let her leave. Um, and so she was trying to leave to, to go home to her family in Mexico. And so the, the owner called uh, immigration uh, to deport her and do all of the legalities um, because she uh, obviously wasn't loyal to her according to the owner. And um, she had met my father at the grocery store because he shopped there, um, but he was 14 years her senior. And uh, not knowing him more than a couple of weeks, the only call she could make was to him to help her get out of that situation and immigration handed her over to him. And so her loyalty to him was decades in the making, something that no, none of us knew until then. 
Well, mom, now it makes sense why you stayed loyal to him despite how terrible he was, but why not tell us? Why hide this story? Just give us an understanding as to why you made that decision. Um, she passed away the day that that story was published. So she didn't get to see the, the final uh, reading. But for me, I was okay. Um, I was fine uh, with um, having had that peace that we found resolution. And the reason I bring that to you is because you talked about equilibrium and where I was. And I remember um, the original hurt I had in 1991 that my mother would, would um, have seen the things happening in our household and stay quiet and say nothing or just walk away to having seen my mother be able to tell her story so vid vividly and be willing to share it with other people, um, that, that was uh, significant for me. So there was no sadness in her death because our relationship had evolved. So even that loss didn't uh, make me pause or hesitate or question uh, who I was. Um, I go back to 2020, when you absolutely have no control of what um, is in front of you. And you are now grounded from traveling. The very business that you do in seeing people on site, hundreds of people at a time, no longer can happen. And you don't know what the time period is going to be. I did everything I creatively could to establish the very uh, format that we're using now, virtual sessions to try to engage and convince an audience that we will still have uh, a genuine learning experience and you really need this. In the meantime, everybody's done with Zoom because that's all they do, right? And um, as that process was unfolding, I, um, I think it was about May uh, of that summer, I started having the questions uh, my, for my children. Mom, if this lets up, um, what if we don't spend any more time together? So they now recognize for the first time in their little lives what it meant to spend that kind of quality time together. And at that point, I knew they needed me. Uh, they no longer needed uh, the me that traveled. The, they, they just needed the safety that I could provide. And so I had to make the decision to transition out of uh, e-colors and education. And I made that announcement mid-summer um, um, after June and uh, transitioned into actually writing a handbook uh, over this pandemic from the very experience that we had with my children. And uh, that handbook is entitled From Being to Becoming. Um, it's a handbook on uh, resilience in challenging times. And um, I wanted to bring that back because as we talked about this evening, everything is a process. And when I was halted and I felt like I had no control of what my career was going to, to look like, I needed to let people know that even the best of us, remember the package, uh, don't have all of the answers. And by the way, I had to go back to my own research and that's why I wrote the handbook because I needed to, to reframe my thinking to get myself up. But it, it, that didn't mean I wasn't knocked down for a few days because I, I was, I could not believe that I could not get myself out of 
the situation that I was in. And it took a pandemic that basically said to me, you can't control me. You can't decide what happens in your life because I'm deciding what happens in your life financially. I'm deciding you know, what the health of your family may look like. And if you have any future family members after this year, that was hard uh, to, to know that you lost that much control of what you thought made sense to you. Um, and, and so that um, shifted me back to uh, work that I was doing with the home, uh, the children's home. And I really wanted to connect back with them. And it just so happened to be that as they were learning that I was transitioning into my own independent work, um, they invited me to come back uh, to do um, uh, more full-time work with them. And actually that just started about two weeks ago uh, because I had been doing uh, so much contract work with Resiliency Doc. Uh, but I'm just going, I'm going to continue to extend that in the evenings, just like you see me do now and on the weekends. Um, but during the day, I'm fully committed to uh, Sunny Glen Children's Home and their mission. Resiliency, empathy, three things are standing out to me about mm -hmm. you and this conversation, women in leadership. Resiliency, empathy, telling your story. Mm -hmm. Listening to your mom the last nine years of her life, and finally, 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 in the end, she's able to tell her story. Yes. Her resiliency. Right. And with not only receiving your empathy, but from the empathy she had towards your father and why mm -hmm. that was necessary. Right. And to hear your children in their resiliency and in their emphatic relationship with you, their mother, what happens if we don't get to be together anymore? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What happens next or what happens when and if everything changes again? You're now at this crossroads, as you say, right. you had to come back to this place where you, had, you couldn't do it alone. No. And you had to go back to that place of this public, create a public image. And now I can see why that's earth shattering. Yeah. I can yeah. see why that is, would be a very traumatic experience on top of everything else. Yeah. Survived and overcome. We've got about 18 minutes, Dr. Mercado. I really, man, this is really beautiful stuff tonight. And it's really moving. What would you like to say to to those that might be struggling with this kind of family history about not necessarily needing just to create a new image, but engage the reality of the image that's there? If I could, uh, Mark, um, I, I would like to add this part that I added in the in the handbook and. Um, I didn't tell you this earlier, but, but it, this is an exercise that anyone can do with themselves. And, and I call it, who are you in the story? And I think that one of the things I've appreciated about our conversation, Mark, is that every um, synopsis that you've given of all of the segments that we've talked about, I'm listening to them back and you're right. It is so significant and large every single time that a decision had to be made. So, so being a successful woman in leadership 
isn't just, oh, everything's wonderful. It is uh, tough going day in and day out. And there are going to be big moments along the way that push you uh, and, and propel you to move forward and build that momentum. But you still have to find a way uh, uh, to push through. But here's what has also helped me. And I also use this exercise with the people that I work with because I only want the best for everyone. And you know how you said earlier, uh, you know, people will think that you're tough. Uh, it, it is, I uh, despise conflict for the sake of conflict. I'm not interested in having conflict with anyone. I've seen fights get ugly and that's not worth my time nor my energy. Uh, so what I'm interested in is if you're really wanting to have a conversation in the, one of the things that my committee asked me was who will you be in your story. And in, in my story, they were referencing to my narrative, to my dissertation. They said, will you be the victim? And I immediately responded, no way, not gonna happen. I don't feel sorry for myself, nor do I want anyone to feel sorry for me. No, you're not gonna hear that voice. That was just done, it was adamant. They said, will you be the hero uh, in your story? And I said, listen, I, just like I told you right now, Mark, uh, what happened my freshman year, Valentine's Day, mm, that was a bust, uh, not a good thing that, that happened. And guess what? I, I was a young adult uh, that uh, that situation uh, got away from me and, and I didn't make the best choices, right? And because that, that's a situation I placed myself in. And I, and I acknowledge that. And so I said, I'm not gonna be the hero because I've also taken missteps along the way. So, so yes, abuse stopped for all of our family the day I left. Yes, the, the, no one was no longer assaulted after that. But that doesn't mean that me playing this role of a hero would lend itself to really truly telling the story in the way that it needed to be told. So I said, when I tell my story, um, I would prefer <clears throat> to be the narrator. And the narrator uh, in the story is going to tell you everything from all perspectives. And by the way, I'm also going to tell you all the wrongs that I made. I'm not gonna sit there and tell you that I made all of the right choices every single time. So you'll see me take missteps too. You'll, you'll hear that voice as well and how I try to find ways to resolve that. But when I then present a situation to somebody, I'm not interested in your agenda. What I'm interested in when you come in is tell me everything firsthand. You heard it, you, you were engaged in it, you were a part of the conversation, but don't tell me something because you wanna hurt somebody or you wanna create a story where you're the hero and nobody else would have handled that situation had you not been there uh, and make it bigger than what it is. I don't have time for that. Um, professionally or personally. So if anyone is looking to try to figure out what is that story that I give, you're in charge of your brand. You're in charge of letting people know who you are. You have to decide who you are in your story. I really like those questions. You know, who will you be in your story? Will you be the victim? Will you be the hero? And the truth is we all make take missteps and no one really is the hero. Right. Uh, Come on, let's be real here. Yeah. But I do appreciate wholeheartedly the concept of being the narrator. Mm -hmm. 
And that's preferred because you get to tell the whole story looking from the outside in, mm -hmm. what went well, what didn't go well, mm -hmm. and be truthful and be honest and have that right. almost that dispassionate third party point of view. Is right. that correct? Right. Yeah. And we're in charge of our brand. We get to, I think this is really critical, Dr. Mercado, because in this concept of resiliency, in this concept of empathy, we have to take ownership. And we're not very good at taking ownership. Right. So in, we've got about 13 minutes left. Let's talk about resiliency and empathy in the regards to the narrator and ownership. It goes back to what I had said to you um, earlier about uh, being self-aware. Um, if an individual is not willing to acknowledge um, what their issues are, like I'm overwhelmed, how do you overcome that? How, how do you address that to a point where you no longer are sitting and ruminating and whatever that thought is overtaking? You have to have a strategy to do that. There has to be a systemic way to think through this. I fully uh, believe that and understand that we are um, feeling creatures uh, and you can't see it because I'm on camera, but I'm looking at my gut. You feel it, it's in your gut, who think. Yes, I, I feel emotions too. But as you feel those emotions, you have to take that epicenter of the brain that we have and you have to make what our frontal cortex is meant to do a reasonable decision. What is that reasonable decision? Uh, and you have to consciously be aware of that decision that you're making because you know that any decision that you make is going to have some kind of consequence. The likeliness uh, of it is you want it to be good, but in order for that to be good, then you have to work towards that. It doesn't just happen, right? And so you're intentionally working through how one, you're going to, to overcome. The other part is, how do you rally? How do you get people to come in and help you and support you when you need it? Because if you're being offered that and you're denying it, then you can't come back later and say, I didn't have anybody there when I needed them. They're there, you're just not choosing to acknowledge them, right? So, so that's uh, another um, aspect of that. Um, and again, I, I mentioned empathy because sometimes uh, we are over uh, empathetic and there's a lot of emotion involved and yes, I'm crying with you, but what did that do? What did that produce other than a, a crying party? I, 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 again, if you're in the business of me helping you find a solution, then release what is there, but also know we have to figure out what those next steps are. So always for me, there's a moment in time when I, when I need to assess my risk. Is it worth me still staying or do I move forward uh, and, and go through whatever I need to go through so that I can get to the other side? Uh, but that's the part that I need people to, I, for me, if, if you're in my sphere of influence, I need you to find, uh, is it that risk that you're about to take, is it worth it? Is it necessary? Uh, is it something that you need to make happen in order for you to gain the results that you're looking for? Um, and, and so in, in a sense that that's part of the process that I go through. And so, again, I can tell you that it can sound like I'm not uh, empathetic, but I am. I just want empathy with the next steps to come after. 
It is, I think it's important. The message that I'm hearing is we have to have the capacity to be clinical, mm -hmm. to be pragmatic. Yeah. Yes, there's pain. Yes, acknowledge the pain. And there might even be a need for some tears yeah. and the shedding of those tears to get the, the strength of that emotion or the debilitation of that emotion out of the way. But then we do have to come back to being self-aware. You said acknowledge our issues. We have to have a systemic way or strategy to think our way through it intentionally work through the issues at hand. How do I rally? That does require a measure of clinical thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, you almost have to, um, from that narrator standpoint, get yourself out and just see the situation for what it is. So people aren't used to that and they're just harboring everything in or saying nothing at all how does anyone know what is actually happening? Uh, you've not declared it if you keep it all in or you, you're always coming at it from the perspective of the, the hurt still being there. And this is how powerful our brain is. That um, amygdala that processes that emotion and that makes a reasonable uh, decision takes about 90 seconds for that to process. Okay, so I, then I'm going to make the decision, then I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. And now I've responded, right? Hopefully responded and not reacted. And as I am doing that, if I feel pretty good about that, this is part of that self-fulfilling prophecy that I will continue to repeat that behavior because I already know my, my uh, amygdala has already told me, yep, been there before. This is the reasonable decision to make. But if I'm not reasonable, I could still walk in to a room where someone created hurt and my uh, amygdala will say, oh, the last time I was there, um, he hurt me and I still don't like him, even though I've not had an exchange with him before. And all I'm doing is replaying those last 90 seconds that we had and I still have control over that. So if I know that the brain functions that way, I'm telling my uh, good folks that, that may be listening to this, that you too have control of what you decide uh, what to do with those 90 seconds. Why is it important, Dr. Mercado, for us as leaders to develop resiliency? Because we have to persevere. In the, no one is uh, going to give you a strategic plan and say, here it is. And life is going to work out just in the way that I shared it with you. It doesn't happen that way. You actually have to create those steps for yourself. And so in order to create those steps for yourself, you have to show yourself how, how you can push through and pull through uh, the hardest of times. Because when things are good, everyone's good. But when it's not, that's the true testament of how you are able to get yourself out of those hard situations. You just said no one's going to give you a strategic plan mm -hmm. and you're going to have to create those steps for yourself. Again, there's a, such a there's such a determination when you voice those expressions, Dr. Mercado, that it's almost scary. What? Because, well, <laughs> because there's such you speak with such an awareness <laughs> and resoluteness. It you you have a clear understanding of what's going on inside of your brain. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't have that. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of that, too. So as I'm listening to you speak, there is such a determination about who you are. I can see how that would intimidate people. I'm trying not to do that. <laughs> well, well, it's not negative. It's not a negative. I think the, the value of that is what we can become when we become properly aware. Yes. And how we can make those necessary changes. We can, we can and should develop a, a clinical approach to what we're thinking, how we're thinking, why we're thinking, and is it correct what we're thinking? I don't want anyone to misinterpret. First of all, uh, my PhD is in education curriculum and instruction with emphasis in multicultural education. So I'm not that kind of doctor on the clinical side. But what I, I would say, uh, Mark, is that all the, the questions that you just asked is you thinking critically, like cognitively, critically saying to yourself, is this really what you need? Is this really the process you want to take yourself down through? You have to inquire to know. And if you're not aware and you're just doing it for the sake of whatever someone else might have recommended, that, then that's where we may be disappointed because we really truly weren't intentional about some of those decisions that we made. Those are probably better words. Yeah. Critically thinking, yeah. cognitively thinking, yeah. And we have to inquire yeah. if we're going to be aware. Yes. All right. Let's talk a little bit. We got about three minutes left. Let's talk about resiliencydoc.com. Let's talk about your work, how you can help individuals or organization in their ongoing resiliency and empathy development. One of the things that I found in uh, the year now that I have been working virtually uh, from home doing the resiliency doc work and the research that I have just recently established was that people um, have needed uh, more time to really figure out how to um, manage their leadership tendencies because what was normal, what was traditional uh, has all been disrupted. And, and discombobulated, if you will. And part of what um, my goal is, is to try to figure out what is disorienting them, where in their brain, which by the way, the amygdala doesn't like change. It's saying alert, alert, it's different. Well, guess what? All of 2020 uh, was different. And not that uh, 2021 has played nice uh, too greatly because look at the weather storm Texas is in, that's not existed uh, before. And so we're uh, you know, in all sorts of uh, different challenges right now. And, and so everyone is having to figure out how do I manage myself it, when this change is happening? So the coaching uh, that I offer in Resiliency Doc and what I went back to, what my, my basic uh, core research and, and things that I knew worked for me was to establish um, a six session series through coaching to be able to offer people how to get out, uh, at least at the start of getting themselves out of that funk, uh, finding different strategies to approach uh, the different changes that were happening uh, their way. And most importantly, uh, even them recognizing that they needed to offer themselves some grace, uh, a chance to make mistakes, a chance to say, you know what, I'm sorry for even not knowing and not even being fully aware that I was not as good as I thought that I could be in this instance and recognize that with the people that they work with. Um, but um, I have also, uh, because I wrote the handbook, 
I developed and designed a um, three-part series uh, webinar where people participated, organizations, um, and most recently it's actually been universities and colleges um, and some school districts that have participated in these virtual um, three-part series because they really needed um, that constant measure of just checking in with themselves, seeing how they are handling the current situations. And because everything is changing week by week, that they too have to have some kind of litmus to check in and say, am I really doing everything that I can? And those sessions um, offer them a little bit of an uh, opportunity to, to figure out if they're truly able to maximize their own energy, their own efforts, uh, with the people that they're working with, and particularly if they're school leaders or leaders within the, the college, then you have an influence over hundreds and maybe even thousands of people. And so that's key to, to know how they're hearing your messaging during this time. So, so Resiliency Doc um, offers that. And, and the same thing, as I mentioned earlier, if people then were looking for a keynote address, then I offer my keynotes on, on that topic. Final comments, Dr. Mercado, on why we must learn to communicate clearly, especially now in the midst of the storms we find our, our nation, our communities find themselves in. Um, most of the time, um, people are generous with how well they communicate. They believe uh, they communicate really well. And I just want to uh, bring awareness to people to say that communication is synonymous. In other words, it's the same as being an, uh, a leader. So if you want to be an effective communicator, you need to be, uh, I'm sorry, if you want to be an effective leader, then your communication must be effective. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to establish what effective communication? And here's where people are generous. I, I um, with each other, um, I, I um, will uh, have an open door policy. Guess what? We don't have an open door right now because you're virtual. So no, that's out the window. Uh, so that, that's not the same. How do you reestablish that? How do you reconnect with your, your colleagues to let them know that that open door may look differently? And what does that look like? Um, and, and so the work that we're doing uh, requires us to refine the very things that were normal and traditional and standard for us. And that is no longer how we're operating. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us this wonderful evening, Dr. Rosalinda Mercado, PhD, uh, CEO of ResiliencyDoc.com, Chief Operations Officer of Sunny Glen's Children Home in San Benito, Texas, home of Freddie Fender. If you don't know who <laughs> Freddie Fender is, look him up. Uh, Dr. Mercado, we thank you for your expertise, your time, your heartfelt expressions, sharing so much of your personal history with us. Uh, thank you for uh, your willingness to be vulnerable as well as strong tonight. And I know you. that your story this evening is going to have an incredible impact to all those that will hear it. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I appreciate your understanding with uh, all of the timing and everything that we needed to get done. It was wonderful to reconnect with you. Very good. Have a wonderful evening. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.